Last time I was up here uh, sharing, I shared, my, I shared with you my life as a drug dealer. This morning, I'm going to try and share a little bit about my life as a disciple. So not as thrilling. No one's going to get killed or anything. But uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about that because we're talking about discipleship in Matthew and particularly going into the Sermon on the Mount, which what, is what we're doing this morning. We'll be starting the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. So I want to set that up by talking a little bit more than uh, about discipleship. For me, when I became a Christian uh, back in junior high, I come from a family that has uh, no religious uh, background whatsoever. And so when I became a Christian, it was all new to me. I was very excited about it. Uh, in eighth grade, gave my life to Jesus uh, and started going forward with, the, with what that meant, being a part of the youth groups, hearing the youth leaders talk about uh, how God saves you, forgives you for your sins, and those things. The more, uh, as I got older in the youth groups, the youth leaders uh, started saying things like uh, following Jesus. And that, you know, to me, I was like, oh, there's another part to this, you know, not just getting saved, but there's something where you can actually follow Jesus. And they started talking about that. But very soon in that uh, process, I realized I, I started getting pretty frustrated uh, because I, as I read about following Jesus, I got angry because I thought, well, yeah, the disciples followed Jesus because they had a flesh and blood Jesus to follow. And so I was looking around saying, okay, who's going to disciple me? Who am I going to follow? And so I looked to the youth leaders, and they didn't really know what to do about that. And so I was frustrated about that. And yet it still was in deep in my, in my bones. Uh, then uh, later on, I went to seminary. And, I, and actually going to seminary, I thought, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have thought this, but I thought, wow, I'm going to seminary. There will be somebody to disciple me in seminary for sure. All those professors all those PhDs, all those degrees, you know, they know Greek and Hebrew, and certainly they can show me how to follow Jesus. Uh, went to seminary. Again, uh, I felt let down. What I ended up being discipled in was how to preach, how to do a three-point sermon, how to uh, set up a worship service, how to counsel, um, how to do church finances, things like that. So I was a disciple in how to do church, not how to follow Jesus. So I was frustrated and uh, asked anyone who was in seminary with me that I was not too uh, gracious about my frustration. I actually became a, quite a strong critic of the church and a lot of things, and I was pretty... Uh, pretty uh, in your face about it in seminary. So when they had the banquet at the end, when we were graduating, they had a banquet and they, they picked an animal to represent uh, your, the first letter and uh, your last name for each person graduating. And so my name is Zaz Vorka, so I, my last name starts with Z. So they, you know, and they're up there uh, roasting us basically. And they say, oh, and Dan Zaz Vorka, is like a zebra. You better not get on his back or he'll 
buck you off, you know, and that's exactly the way I was in class. I was like, wait a second, I don't agree with that. You know, I was always confronting the professors and, and I was always pushing for, well, why aren't we following Jesus? <laughs> or who's going who's gonna to disciple me? And partly maybe there were some people that wanted to disciple people, but I was a little bit intimidating, I think. Well, then later on, I, I became a, a professor at a seminary in Mexico. And going down, I think I sort of thought, wow, if I go down to Mexico, the missionaries, they'll really have it down. They'll know what it means to follow Jesus. And certainly, I could find a missionary who will disciple me to follow Jesus. Um, so I went down to the seminary, and then uh, I felt frustrated again because I was looking for so someone to disciple me, and I couldn't find anyone. Uh, and so there's a chapel service every day in the seminary in this seminary in Mexico, and you uh, people rotate in and preach. So it came my turn to preach, and so I I, I was since I was frustrated and I was, I was praying and I, maybe God let it, uh, partly it was my frustration. I, I decided to preach on the woes from the gospels. You know, when Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees and woe to you, you scribes and woe to you religious leaders, you know, really drill it in. And so I did a whole, wrote up a whole sermon on basically including myself that said, woe to us. And it was about where are the people who can lead the younger followers? Where are the disciples? Where are the Moseses and the Davids and the, and the Elijahs? And where are those people in our day? And I preached this sermon uh, shaking in my boots the whole way, but I, I just felt like it had to be preached. And I thought, even if they kick me out of the seminary, and get, I've got to preach this, they're... And I was sure they were going to kick me out of the seminary because I was like, woe is us. And this is all in Spanish. So, Ay de nosotros. Ay de nosotros. And I was just yelling. And it was going on and on. And, and I finished the sermon and, and you know, and uh, no one said anything. And uh, the next day, though, and I'm going to want you to hold this thought because I'm going to put some stuff in between. But the next day, something happened. And I'm going to come back to that. So hold that thought uh, that in the middle of that story. And I want to talk about discipleship. Uh, so Angela, we're going to put up the uh, Matthew 4 passage on the screen if we can. I, I want to look at the way Jesus did discipleship, at, at least at the beginning here before, uh, before the Sermon on the Mount. It says... Uh, in Matthew 4, 17 uh, through 19, and we'll go a little farther than that, but it says, from that time, this is after Jesus' temptations. He comes back, says from that, and after all his baptism, says from that time Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God, heaven has come. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. And for me, Jesus is proclaiming. He's preaching. I call it proclaiming in, in, in my outline here. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. And I was going to write this. We got some old school technology up here too. And uh, so first, I'm going to put on... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
So on this side, we have Jesus. And then I'm going to put the disciples over here. That probably looks really weird on my tippy toes. Okay. Now, the first thing Jesus does is proclaim. So he proclaims. And what, what do you think our response is supposed to be? It's right in the passage there. He proclaims, we repent. repent. We repent. So the first stage in discipleship is repentance. Jesus proclaims the upside... Uh, claim. Uh, I am the worst speller in the world. I don't know why I'm using a chalkboard, but uh, I'm dyslexic, and so everything comes out weird. But uh, so Jesus proclaims... We repent. Jesus proclaims the upside-down kingdom. So if something's upside-down that Jesus is proclaiming, what would repentance mean in terms of the upside-down kingdom? What would it look like if you were just to blurt out a picture of that? If the kingdom's upside-down, what should I do? Stand on my head, right? I should be upside-down. So repentance... Metanoia in Greek is changing your mind 180 degrees. Changing your mind and your heart about what the kingdom of heaven is. So Jesus, first thing he did is proclaim. Um, then we'll go to the next verse. So in Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Peter, and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake... For they were fishermen. And then the next verse. And he said, Jesus said, come follow me. So the next thing that Jesus does, he proclaims the kingdom. The second thing that he does is call. Call the disciples to follow him. So you got the proclamation, you got the call. Jesus makes a call. What do the disciples do to answer the call to follow Jesus? They follow Jesus, right. So their, their response is to follow. Can, every, can you see that? Is that a glare? Okay, okay. So, and then Jesus says, after he says, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. In my version, it says, I will make you fishers of people. I will make you fishers of people. So the next thing Jesus says is, I will make I will make you. Sounds like a line in a movie. I made you. You know, Jesus could say, I made you. I will make you. And so our response, is, which is not up there, what do you think the response to Jesus making us something is? I think I heard it. Become. We become. We become. Now there's a rub here, and that's what I'm going to get to. The rub is that church, coming to church, doing church, however you put it, doesn't help too much with this. Doesn't help too much. It might help with this part. 
I'm proclaiming something to you this morning. And you might decide to respond with repentance. But it doesn't necessarily play into this part. And I'm not sure how it plays into this part. So let me share with you some of uh, what I see as some of, my, some of my frustrations. When Jesus calls, we follow. But I believe that in the Gospels, the how is as important as the what. The what is the Sermon on the Mount and all of the things that go with that. The how is Jesus comes over to you says to you, follow me, you get up, you follow that person, you watch them, Jesus heals someone, I'm standing here watching Jesus heal someone, Jesus gives money to the poor, I'm standing over here, I'm watching Jesus get money to the poor, Jesus goes off in the wilderness in the morning and prays, I watch him pray off in the distance. I believe that that is a crucial aspect of discipleship that maybe no longer exists. Another crucial aspect of discipleship is that uh, Angela, at the end of uh, Matthew 28, that, la that verse, yeah, at the end of the book of Matthew, the disciples had followed Jesus for what? Three years in, uh, in every situation. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Notice how Jesus passes on the make part, and I'm sure he passes on actually all of this part to us. So all of this part transfers to the disciples. They now proclaim the kingdom of heaven, and call people to repent. They now look for disciples and say, they say to them, follow me. And they now make disciples of all nations, teaching them. And later it says, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded, right there. In our day and age, I feel like we come to worship, we say we need to be disciples, and then we say, get out there, you and Jesus, get out there and do it. Go and, go and do it with Jesus, who you can't necessarily see, you can't necessarily feel. We do believe he's there, we believe his spirit fills us, but it's not the best environment for learning to be a disciple I believe that this is supposed to have this was supposed to be a circle that kept going all the way to our day and age now imagine if you became a Christian and you immediately had some other persons probably some older person come up to you and say, follow me. I'll teach you what it means to be a Christian. That would be fantastic. It would be, we wouldn't be muddling around in the dark. We'd say, oh, this, this person's walked this way for 30 years. 
Now he's going to take me on that journey. But here in, in the church, we do something different. We, uh, if you notice, when Jesus says, follow me, the disciples, they dropped everything. They dropped the nets. They left their father. Boom, they went with Jesus. They basically gave up everything. They took the very hardest choice, probably, at the beginning of the discipleship process. And then Jesus gave them small choices and their small hard choices all the way through the process. How do we do it? We, we, do, we make it as easy as possible for you to come and be here. And Ryan told me to say this because I, I said it and he said, you've got to say that on Sunday morning. We even offer you coffee to come. He's like, you've got to say that. <laughs> We make it as easy as possible. So we try to make the discipleship process about a lot of easy, little, teeny choices, hoping that someday the big choice will happen for you. But perhaps that's not even, you can't even get there from here. That's the phrase that's been standing, uh, swinging around in my head. You know, I've been praying, Lord, how do we get to discipleship from doing church? And I keep hearing this phrase, you can't get there from here. No, Lord, don't say that. You, we've got to be able to get there from here. No, you can't get there from here. It's like living on an island. You've got to go somewhere else first before you get there. So my, one of my challenges this morning, and I don't know how I'm doing on time, halfway through. Um, one of my challenges to us this morning is to start thinking as a congregation about what it might mean to disciple each other, to follow Jesus together, flesh and blood people doing that with each other. What might it mean? If we can't get there from here, what steps do we need to take to get there? Whether they're scary or not, I don't know. And I feel, now we go back to the seminary. Remember, I preached the really hard sermon. I'm shaking in my boots. They're going to come and say, Dan, thank you for coming down to Mexico, but you're fired. <laughs> That's what I thought. The next day, they came to me, the, 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 the leaders of the seminary, the president, and the people, they said, we want to talk to you. And I said, I know you want to talk to me. Uh, so... They invited me into their, their office, and I went in, and they said, we want you to be the chaplain of the seminary, to run all the sermons in chapel services and be a chaplain to the students. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm not fired? <laughs> you know, I, what? And they said, no, this is what we want. Really smart, very smart people. Because when someone tells you, a critic comes to you and say, you, they should fix this, this, and this. The easiest way to shut that critic up and to make them put their money where their mouth is is say, you do it. Welcome. Have the, you have it. So they made me chaplain of the seminary. And I said, I could do whatever I want. They said, well, yeah, to a point. <laughs> so we were preaching sermons on the highway and in the kitchens. And, and uh, we were doing all kinds of things. I was being very creative. But that was the point in my life where God said, okay, 
enough, Dan, of talking about wanting a discipler. I feel like God was saying to me, I'm tired of hearing that. I know you've had to do that do-it-yourself dummy's guide for discipleship, but I'm tired of hearing you say that. You now become the discipler. So the challenge from God to me this morning is to say to you, I will disciple anyone here who wants to follow. I feel completely incapable of being able to do that. But if I'm going to talk about flesh and blood showing flesh and blood how to follow Jesus, then I need to step up and say, I will. I will do that. I will take a chance on that for you. I will probably fail with you on that, but I will take a chance. Okay, I said that, God. <laughs> All right. I have here what the way is supposed to work is a spirit-filled, experienced disciple turns, and I like the, the word I like for uh, a discipler is maestro. It just seems to fit. Master feels weird, like slave master. Maestro includes teacher and sort of master, and I like that. So it's a spirit-filled, experienced disciple turned maestro helps Jesus form us. I think that's how it's supposed to work, that you're actually supposed to make a, a few big choices at the beginning and actually walk around with and hang around, hang out with, oh, back in the light, hang out with somebody who can pray with you and say, this is how I pray. Oh, forgiveness? Hear how I've done forgiveness. Oh, giving to the poor? Let's go do that together. Let me show you what I've learned. All right, at this point, it's, uh, it feels nice and heavy in here. So we're going we're gonna to break it up because um, Randy and I did a video yesterday. So I'm going to take these, uh, these three things, proclaim, call, make, repent, follow, become, and we're going to start the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. We're going to look at the word blessing. And so we did a little video to prep us for talking about blessing. Hopefully... <laughs> It's kind of a way, that's kind of a way of poking fun at what we think are blessings. But Jesus has a, a different agenda and a different understanding of blessings. So his very first sermon, the very first things he does is start talking about blessings. If you know in the Old Testament, a lot of sermons in the Old Testament end with the blessings. You know, you follow Yahweh and you are his people and you build the temple and you do this, Yahweh will bless you. God will bless you. Jesus flips everything around and starts, he's, he just is so excited, he just wants to start with the blessings first. Uh, a little fact that you may know in your Bibles, uh, it, it may say, you ever see where Jesus says, truly I say to you, or truly, truly I say to you? You know what Jesus is actually saying? He's saying, amen, amen, I say to you, amen, amen, I say to you. He doesn't wait to the end of the prayer to say amen. He says it at the beginning. 
And so this is what Jesus is doing. So let's uh, bring up uh, Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to read the Beatitudes. Except now with... Uh... Ah! Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted and the prophets who were before you. Jesus has a different understanding of what it means to be blessed and who is going to be blessed. In fact, if you do a study of the word blessing in the New Testament, you will find basically, I got it down to basically 10 categories of blessings. See if you can find the blessings that you think are blessings in your life in this, these categories. One, blessed are those who believe and obey Jesus and the word. Two, blessed are those who serve the poor and needy. Three, blessed are those who participate in the kingdom of God. Four, blessed are those who testify and are persecuted. Five, blessed are those who die in the Lord and are resurrected. Six, blessed are those who receive and give forgiveness. Seven, blessed are the poor slash poor in spirit. Eight, blessed are those who mourn. Nine, blessed are those who are meek. And ten, blessed are those who... Blessed are the peacemakers. So four of them are just here in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what describes the word blessing in the New Testament. Ever described the blessings in your life? Or have I ever described the blessings in my life that way? Jesus is not only calling us, he's proclaiming the blessings of the Sermon on the Mount, but he's calling us to follow in those blessings. What does it mean to follow in the blessings of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes? I think it means to start being those kind of people. To start being poor, poor in spirit. To start being peacemakers. To try to be pure in heart. To walk together in mercy. The other day, I work as a carpenter in construction and language in const uh, the language carpenters use is, not, is very colorful, but not for Sunday morning. 
and we always are razzing each other, and, the, and I'm working on a crew, and they're razzing each other. And one of the older construction guys, one of the older carpenters, I don't know if he was angry or what, uh, looked at this younger construction guy that, we, that is learning. And I'm there, and, I, and we're just hanging out, and he's half mad and half joking, says, you know, I could just beat the tar out of you. He didn't say tar. I could just beat the tar out of you, and no one on this crew would care because they all want to beat him up or whatever. And then he looks over at me, and he's just recently, I think, known that I'm a Christian or maybe a pastor. And he looks, then he looks over at me and says, except maybe Dan. I'm not sure, but maybe Dan. There's something in him that wants to see me as a peacemaker. The reasons we need to live in the Beatitudes is because the world wants to see these lived out. The world wants to see blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful. The world knows this is what we're supposed to be about. Um, a little funny video. Does that other video work, the sound? You watched a bunch when you were coming in from Young Frankenstein. <laughs> it's just a little joke, but it actually puts, uh, it puts into perspective the next uh, point. <laughs> See if we get sound on this. Let's go. Allow me, master. Oh, thanks very much. Walk this way. This way. This is one of the oldest jokes in the book. Walk this way and then you walk some weird way instead of just going the direction. But this is exactly the point of what it means to be discipled and be discipled in blessings. Once we start walking a certain way, we're leading other people to follow us and do the same. I don't know exactly what that means. Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe it's when someone sneezes. Think about, what am I saying when I say bless you? What am I wishing on them? Or, or uh, how does a blessing apply here? Or maybe it's when uh, going to a foreign country and coming back from uh, being among the poor, maybe the response is not how blessed I am, or maybe the response is, woe is me. Woe is me. I don't know. But, this, uh, but my hope is that someday there will be another part of the church, the other half of the church, which I call the lab. You got the lecture. I'm giving you the lecture but you can get the lab. And I'm hoping there's a lab someday. And particularly for us, I hope we work our way toward a lab where you actually have a lab teacher who guides you through step by step how to live with these blessings and how to take them on yourself and how to become these blessings. So now uh, I'm probably really long, I don't know, but... I'm going to talk specifically about blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke's version, it says blessed are the poor. In Matthew's version, it says blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Basically, those are two sides of one coin. 
They're not different ways of understanding it. They're two sides of the same coin. That the blessed, the poor in spirit are also poor. And the poor are also, that Jesus is talking about are also poor in spirit. This means blessed are the poor who are oppressed, who are downtrodden, who are depending on God in their situation. How do we understand this in our lives? First off, once we've repented uh, from thinking, blessed are the rich, that would be our repentance. No, blessed are the rich. Repent, turn it on its head. Blessed are the poor. Then we move to what does that mean? Why are the poor blessed? Or is there some advantage that the poor have? Um, how can we find this out? The next thing we do in our, with our discipleship program is we go and find poor people. You go and find somebody who's poor and befriend them. Not just because they may be miserable poor. <laughs> they're not just righteous because they're poor. But you might find something about the kingdom of God in their situation or their community that you didn't know about before. One of the things that uh, we did, and I've mentioned this before, is uh, Kelly and I and our kids moved down to Mexico City to find the poor. We moved into a squatter's neighborhood where there's really poor people living in cardboard shacks, and we lived with them for a year. We were... We had a lot of questions when we, when we left, but we had a lot of answers too. One of the uh, uh, labs that I'm going to give you today is a sheet of paper, an article by Philip Yancey talking about the advantages of the poor. But I'll just share you some of them that we discovered in our neighborhood. One, hospitality was, was not only something they practiced, but it was a necessity in a poor neighborhood. We were blown away by the hospitality. I would visit a house and they had nothing to eat and they would feed me what they had for lunch and they would send the kids out to get sodas at, at the corner store for me. And I visited like 10 houses on, on Saturdays. And I was still skinny. I don't know how it worked out. But I would eat 10 meals that day. Hospitality. The other thing that the poor have is a, a dependence on powerful people and a dependence on God. They are one day away from a lot of really nasty things in their lives, really miserable things. If something goes wrong today, tomorrow's not going to be good at all. It could even lead to death. So the poor are very close to what it means to depend on God. The other thing they have is a sense of community. Uh, I was down, we were down there and they said the, the water truck, the water truck is coming and it didn't come, it turned around because the road is so steep. Uh, we lived in this really steep neighborhood and the road is so uh, potholed and so messed up the truck can't even get up. If it comes down, it can't get back up the road. 
And it, this, all this was right in front of our house. So I'm, in, I'm thinking American individualism. I'm like, oh, no, it's my responsibility. The whole community is going to be without water. We only get one barrel of water a week. So imagine if you've used up all your water and uh, the truck's not coming. So I was like, oh, no. So I grab, uh, I didn't have any tools. I didn't have anything. I'm in the middle of the road, and I'm pulling dirt in with my hands into these holes. I'm thinking, I've got to do this, or they're going to be really mad at me. What I didn't know is they already planned a work party. And with five minutes after I'm out there doing all that stuff, all the women in the neighborhood showed up with shovels and cement and wheelbarrows, because all the men are working. And all the women came, and we all worked together to fix the road in front of my house so we could get water. So they have community. They depend on God. There's a whole bunch of other things that happen in a poor community. And you'll find those in this article that I'll pass out, and we'll also give you a link to it. It'll probably be uh, on the website where the sermon is. Find a way to connect with poor people on a more than a one hour or one minute basis. Find and make friends with someone who you think might be poor or poor in spirit. You know, the Beatitudes, the, I'm going to end with this. I had some pictures of the Beatitudes. And one of them is, here's the kingdom of heaven. And the Beatitudes are all these border towns that you go through to get to the kingdom of heaven. See, the kingdom of heaven has a huge wall around it, not because God put it there, but because we put it there. The wall of pride, the wall of fear, the wall of lust. All these things are walls to us entering into the kingdom of heaven. But there's these little border towns, the border town of the poor, the border town of the mourners, the border town of the peacemakers. If you go toward that border town, you can get into the kingdom of heaven there. I'm not sure how it works, but I think it does. Jesus said, look for the narrow way. For the way is broad that leads to destruction, but the narrow way leads to life. The narrow way is somewhere among the poor. A narrow way. There's another parable that says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds treasure in a field. He finds the treasure. He puts it back in and buries it and goes and sells everything he has and then buys the field. I think the field is the poor, the poor in spirit. What does it mean to buy that field, to take up residence there? All through Christian history, people have been trying to do this. I don't know what that means for us, the richest nation in the entire history of the world. But it's got to mean something. And finally, in this process, if we go follow Jesus to be with the poor, because Jesus was poor, he will make us like him. And I'm going to end with this passage, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. <laughs> Every time I turn around, I go, Boom. The, uh, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, through, so that you, through his poverty, 
might become rich. I believe that every single one of these Beatitudes is talking about who Jesus is. And Jesus wants us to follow him into the Beatitudes to become like him. Paul is saying this, that we become rich so that the Corinthians will think, oh, Jesus was rich, became poor, so that we become rich, now we become poor so that oh, somebody else will become rich. The Sermon on the Mount is a tough, a tough teaching. But Jesus starts it at the beginning and goes through it. At the end, it doesn't say he stopped teaching. It says he stopped talking. Guess what happened next? He started showing. Let's find a way to show each other and other brothers and sisters how to follow Jesus concretely with flesh and blood. Let's do a lab, not just have lectures. If I were you out there with so many lectures, I'd just be like, enough with the lectures, you know. Let's close in prayer.